Last week we started a series called the Spiritual Warfare. We're going to talk about that for the next several weeks. Now, as disciples of Jesus, we know the spiritual element of the world around us is real. It's not the subject of fairy tales and fantasy. Now, with this realization, there's a balance that we must maintain. C.S. Lewis explains the balance this way. There are two equal and opposite errors to which our race can fall into about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, according to Lewis, both extremes work in favor of the enemy. Disbelieving in their existence allows them to roam and work freely among us. And an unhealthy interest in them keeps our eyes on them and not on Jesus. So in this series on spiritual warfare, I do have three kind of goals that I'm uh, keeping in mind as I prepare the messages. One is to remind us of the battle we're in without leading us to either unhealthy extreme. Secondly, for us to take seriously the call to fight the good fight and to fight for ourselves and for those around us. Then thirdly, to encourage us to keep our eyes on Jesus. One of the great truths of God's word is our victory is only found in Jesus and through Jesus. Uh, We are more than conquerors. So that's what we want to focus on. The passage we're going to look at tonight is a passage where we are called to get actively involved in the battle. So if you haven't already opened your Bible to 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 through 20 is what we're going to read. It should be page 910 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I might ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Paul writes, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in re, or suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, so they'll be taught not to blaspheme. The title of the message tonight is A Call to Arms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We're thankful for the opportunity we have to gather in your house to study your word, just to be together. Lord, we pray tonight that your Holy Spirit would come and he would... Help us to be focused upon you to lay aside any cares of life we may have brought in. In this short time, just to listen to what you have for us from your word. Let your spirit take the word, make it living and active. Let him convict us where we need convicting, challenge us where we need challenging, encourage us where we need encouraging. Just generally work in our lives and make us more like Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the passage is a call to arms. Most of what I've read says Timothy was somewhat timid, maybe even kind of passive um, as a disciple of Christ and as a church leader. And that's why Paul often speaks about his need to take courage and him not having a spirit of fear. It's also the reason Paul is calling on Timothy here to fight the good fight. He's telling Timothy we're in a war and this is no time for timidity and passivity. Timothy, as a a pastor, as a disciple of Jesus, he must be actively engaged in the battle. Now, this call to action is our main idea. Uh, And we don't have a slideshow tonight, uh, but our main idea is we must be actively involved in fighting spiritual battles. We must be actively involved in fighting spiritual battles. Just as there was no time for timidity and passivity from Timothy, there is no time for timidity and passivity for us. We must be actively involved in fighting spiritual battles. Paul's call to take up arms 
and fight spiritual battles is one we must hear and we must heed. Paul's call to arms here is broke up into three sections. There is the charge, there are the anchors, and then there is the warning. Tonight we only have time to look at one. We should finish up the others next week. So the charge is fight the good fight. That's what he says in verse 18. The charge to Timothy, the charge to us, fight the good fight. Paul charges Timothy in verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. Not to forget the prophecies that had been made over him. Now, we don't know for sure what these prophecies were, uh, but apparently somebody had spoken some words from the Lord over Timothy's life about the kind of man he would be, the kind of disciple he would be, the kind of pastor he would be. uh, And these things apparently went against his natural timidity. And so Paul is charging him, remember those things and keep going, push into them and live the way uh, that God has said you're going to live. Now, a charge was a military command. It was a command laying the person charged under an urgent and critical obligation. The urgent and critical obligation Paul is laying upon Timothy is to fight the good fight of faith. He is to get off the sidelines, get out into the fray, to jump in and be counted. This is the charge to us as well. We must be actively involved in fighting the good fight. It's important for us to understand. When we talk about fighting spiritual warfare, there is more to the fight than just Satan and demons. Now, that's a part of it, and we'll see that in a little bit tonight. But that's not the whole of it. God's Word teaches that we have three main enemies, right? And so we'll look at that's what we're going to look at tonight is who we're supposed to fight, the main enemies, uh, what they're capable of, and how we fight them. The first enemy is the world. And one of the main enemies God's Word teaches us we must fight is the world. Now, as it's meant here, the world is the morally and spiritually corrupt system opposed to God and His reign. So, when we talk about the world, what does that look like? Uh, we have, actually, the Bible tells us. So turn to 1 John 2, page 942 in your pew Bible. And look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. John lays out what I would call the three elements of the world that is our enemy. We need to know what these are so that we can fight them. First is the lust of the flesh. Now, the lust of the flesh has to do with the things we can Touch, taste, smell, hear, and see. Usually when we think about the lust of the flesh, we think about sexual sins. And certainly that's a part of what's meant here, but it's not the only thing. It would also include any sort of selfish or greedy physical sort of craving we have. It would also mean satisfying our physical urges contrary to God's will. Right. So, for instance, there's nothing wrong with satisfying sexual desires within the bonds of marriage. But it's sinful when it's satisfied in any way outside the bonds of marriage. There's nothing wrong with satisfying the desire to eat until it becomes gluttony. And that's where the sin gets involved. There's nothing wrong with satisfying the desire to rest until it becomes laziness. And we could take that and we could apply it to any sort of physical desire we have. There are right desires that God has given us and there are right ways that we can and we should satisfy them. That's not the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is the desire to satisfy the right desires God has given us in a way that is outside of the way God says they ought to be satisfied. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes has to do with anything we can see 
and then begin to desire. This can be seeing and desiring something expressly forbidden by God. It can be seeing and desiring something that in and of itself isn't bad until we become, say, borderline obsessed with obtaining it in our lives. This can be something sexual or something materialistic. The lust of the eyes can deal with a person or a thing. The overwhelming materialism we see in our world is an example of the lust of the eyes. And then there is the pride of life. Now, the pride of life means at least two things. First, the pride of life means self-centeredness. Right? A person who is focused on themselves and wants to be noticed. Right? This may mean they seek attention through their dress or their looks. It may mean they seek attention through their position or wealth. It may mean they seek attention through the toys that they have. It may mean they seek attention by seeking to outshine others. There are numerous ways people could go about this, but the goal is always the same. They are seeking to draw attention to themselves. Look at me. Look how awesome I am. That is the pride of life. Secondly, the pride of life would refer to arrogance or conceit. It's an inner attitude causing us to look down on others because for one reason or another, we feel superior to them. These feelings of superiority could be for any number of reasons. They could be because of position, wealth, toys, clothes, intellect, looks, etc. You name it. And human beings can say, because of this, I'm better than people who aren't like this. And that would be the pride of life. Now, we look at this, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We're all aware of the allure of the world. And one way or another, we are all tempted by the things of the world. Each of us can think of a lust of the flesh, a lust of the eyes, or a pride of life that we find attractive. Something in there that pulls at us and makes us want to go and to give in. So how do we fight against these desires that, again, the world is always sort of actively promoting to us? Well, one way is we love Jesus and not the world. Look at verse 15 here. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, when John says not to love the things of the world, he doesn't, he's not talking about the mountains, the seas, the skies that declare God's glory. He also doesn't mean we aren't to love the good things God has given us. Because notice the lust of the flesh, verse 16, or the, I'm sorry, the world, lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes in verse 16 are not from the Father, but they are from the world. To love Jesus and not the world means we're to guard our affections and we're to beware of things that only appeal to our lusts and or to our pride. If something appeals only to our lusts and to our pride, we reject it because we love Jesus more than we love what the world is offering us in that moment. So we we fight against the world by loving Jesus, not the world. We also fight against the world by treasuring the eternal over the temporary. Again, in verse 17, it says the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. All of the things of this world are passing away. None of them are eternal. They are all temporary. But the things of God will always last forever. So a part of not loving the world is recognizing these things for what they are. They're temporary. This life is but a blip in the time frame of eternity. Therefore, we should see the things of the world as temporary so they do not distract us from the eternal things God has for us. Now, two good examples of the world and the way people deal with it from God's word come to my mind. One is the story of Zacchaeus from Luke 19 and 1 through 10. Now, if you're familiar with the story, Zacchaeus is a chief 
tax collector, and he's a very wealthy man. Jesus comes to Jericho. Zacchaeus wants to see him, so he climbs up in a tree so he can look out and he can see Jesus when he comes into town. Jesus goes up to Zacchaeus. He sees him, calls him to come down, invites himself to Zacchaeus' house, and they have dinner. Now, the religious leaders don't like this because Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and all Jews hate tax collectors, and there's Jesus eating with them. Then Zacchaeus says, Lord, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give half of my wealth to the poor, and if I have cheated or wronged someone, I am going to repay them four times over. Now, what happened? Jesus said at that point, salvation has come to this man's house. What happened? Well, Zacchaeus understood who Jesus was. He understood who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do. And in that moment, his earthly possessions, they lost their glitter. They lost their luster to him. And he loved Jesus and not the world. And he demonstrated that by his willingness to give up all of his stuff, if that's what it took. He treasured the eternal. He treasured Jesus over the temporary, over the stuff. Now, I don't know how much money Zacchaeus had. doesn't say. But I can't imagine anyone, especially someone in his position, who could give half their wealth away and then pay back four times what they cheated someone out of and ending still being wealthy. Right? Because he was going to give away half and then pay the four times over. Now, Zacchaeus had actually cheated probably everyone in Jericho at one point or another. That's what they did. But Zacchaeus so treasured Jesus that if what he did in, in restoring this and giving this back caused him to become broke, he was okay with that because in the end he would have Jesus and Jesus was better than stuff. Another example along these lines is the rich young ruler who came to Jesus in Luke 18, 18 through 30, wanting to know how to be saved. Jesus told him that what he had to do was keep the commandments. God said, I've done that all my life. So Jesus said, but there's still one thing you like. Go and sell everything you own and give everything to the poor. Come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. If you remember the story, the rich young ruler became very sad at that because he had great wealth. And then he turned and he walked away without the salvation Jesus was offering him. Now, this is a contrast to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus loved Jesus and not the world, so he gave all that stuff up willingly. The rich young ruler loved the world and not Jesus, and so he held on to his stuff and he let Jesus go away. He treasured the temporary over the eternal. Right? If we want to fight against the world, we have to treasure the eternal over the temporary. We have to recognize that. And then we have to let Jesus shape our values and not the world. Right? God's word teaches us uh, that we are to be different from the world around us. I think many times we've missed the boat on what it means to be different. I think the biggest thing that this means is that our mindset and our values are to be different from the world. The classic passage on being different and not being conformed to this world is Romans 12 too. Everybody probably knows that. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The message paraphrase of this verse is excellent. It says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. 
Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you and develops well-formed maturity in you. Now, the very first sentence is great. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking about it. Now, when you again, when you look at God's word and what it says about how we're to be as disciples of Christ, our, our attitudes, our actions, our reactions to stressors, our values and our priorities and how we talk and how we treat people, how we spend our time, how we spend our money. I mean, it really it deals with every aspect of our lives. And the way God's word talks about how we're to be is is really very different from the world around us. So the question before all of us always is, am I different from the world? I mean, are my values different from the world's values? Or if you were to take just some random lost person off the street and we compared our values, would they be about the same? If we took some random lost person off the street and independently we all wrote down what was the priority in our lives, would they be the same or would they be different? If we took a random lost person off the street and we said, how do you respond to this sort of a stressor in your life? And had them write that down. And then we wrote down how we would respond to the same stressor. Would it be different or would it be the same? Right? If we, how do you treat people? How do we treat people? All of these things we should check and see. Do I, am I like the world or am I like Jesus? And I think a lot of times we are what the, what the, what the paraphrase says. We are so well adjusted to our culture that we fit in without even thinking about it. I mean, we we don't even put forth really the thought process of should I treat this person differently because I'm a follower of Christ? And we just say, this is how I'm going to treat this person because of X, Y, Z. We don't even ask, should my priorities of daily priorities of life be different because I'm a disciple of Christ? And we just say, well, this is what my values and my my priorities are. And that the world is always telling us because the world is always telling us. You're okay like that. You don't want to get too crazy. You don't want to get too radical about that Jesus stuff. You know what? Be be basically moral, but don't get carried away. And, and sure, have these sort of priorities, but don't get carried away. But God's word's never telling us not to get carried away like that. So we have to be careful that we're not letting the world shape our value system. That we're not become that we haven't become so well adjusted to our culture that we fit in. Without even thinking. The values of the world change. How many of us have seen the values of the world change in our lifetime? I mean, the world is is really, really very different than it was when I was a kid. I mean, it, it is very different. It, for some of you who are a little, been around a little bit longer than I have, it's even, you've experienced even more change. But it's not settled. The world isn't where it's going to be. In a few more years, it's going to change even more. So the world's values are always morphing, always shifting. And, I mean, let's be true, always getting worse. But God's word, the values in God's word do not change. Because God does not change. So if we want to fight and win our spiritual battles against the world, then we have to be sure that our Values are shaped by Jesus and the word of God and not by the culture around us. So the world 
is our first big enemy. Our second big enemy is the flesh. Flesh is our sinful nature. It is something every human on earth has. It represents our capacity and our disposition to put self above everything, even God. It is our internal wiring leading us to be resistant to the rule and the reign of God in our lives. The flesh dominates us before we come to Jesus and the flesh continues to resist Jesus's rule in our lives after we come to Jesus. Let me show you this. Turn to Galatians 5, verse 17, hopefully page 893 in your pew Bible. So verse 17, Galatians 5 and 17, for the desire of the flesh is against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another in order to keep you from doing whatever you want. And what we see in this, a part of what we see in this is that the flesh does not go away just because we get saved. Instead, the flesh is ever present with us and always fighting fighting against the things The Spirit of God is leading us to do. The flesh and the Spirit within us are always at odds. They are always diametrically opposed to one another. Therefore, at no point in time will the flesh lead us to do what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. And at no point in time will the Holy Spirit lead us to do what our flesh wants us to do. Right? So, and again, this is a, and I know everybody here tonight knows it, but I just want to clarify this is a huge thing. In in our day, it's, it's often had, well, I feel... I feel peace about doing this or I feel led to do this. But make no mistake, the Holy Spirit will never lead us to fulfill the sinful desires of our sinful nature. I mean, that the, the Holy Spirit is not going to lead us to satisfy the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. That is always deception, either satanic deception or self-deception. So these two things are always within us. They're always pulling. The Spirit is saying... Do what Jesus wants us to do. And the flesh is saying, no, 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 go ahead and do this instead. And this is, in many ways, I, I feel this is the, the main spiritual battle we have to fight and win. Right? If we do not win the battle within us, we can't fight and win any battles outside of us. We must first deal with this trouble in our hearts and the trouble in our lives before we can make a difference in the lives of others. So let me give you three ways To fight the flesh. First is reject the victim mentality. This is to me huge for the current culture in which we live. Our culture right now is a victim culture. Nothing is ever our fault. I couldn't help it. There was nothing I could do about it. This is just who I am. I can't, I can't overcome this. This is just the way it is. This victim mentality is a guaranteed way to lose every spiritual battle we fight with our sinful nature. The fight against the flesh begins by recognizing we are no longer slaves to our sinful nature. When we trusted in Jesus as Lord, he freed us from all forms of slavery. We aren't slaves to legalism. We aren't slaves to the law. We aren't slaves to our sinful nature. Now, we don't have time to look at every way that the Bible talks about this, but take some time and read Romans 6. In this next week, Romans 6 is a long, detailed explanation 
of the fact Christ has indeed set us free. Let me just read you two verses from Romans 6, verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And after being freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. So we were slaves to sin and we heard the gospel. And we became obedient to the gospel and we went to Jesus and he saved us. And after that, we were freed from our slavery to sin and now can become slaves and servants of righteousness. We were slaves, but Jesus has set us free. As disciples of Jesus, we must reject the victim mentality. The victim mentality says, I can't help it. There's nothing I can do about it. The victim mentality is a slave mentality. And disciples of Jesus are not slaves. To reject the victim mentality, we must truly believe Jesus has set us free from slavery to our flesh. We must also accept the fact that every sin we commit is a choice we willingly make and not the default setting in our life. Let me say that again. We must accept the fact that every sin we commit is a choice we willingly make and not the default setting over our lives. We have a choice about whether or not we give in to our sinful nature. And the very first step in overcoming it is to say, that was my choice. It was sinful choice. It was a wrong choice. But I could have helped it through Christ. I didn't have to do it. I made a sinful choice. And the reality is, if we're not willing to accept that responsibility and to accept that it was a choice we made and not a default setting over which we had no control, we will never be free from the slavery to our sinful nature. We will never be victors. We will always live a defeated life Because a victim mentality is a defeated mentality. They will always be defeated. So we must reject the victim mentality. And then we must also surrender to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now again, verse 17, the the flesh and the spirit are always at work within us. They're always fighting for control in our lives. But they're not wrestling one another for control over the other. Right? Instead, they are wrestling us for control of us. Right? We often have an idea that the Holy Spirit and the flesh within us are fighting one another for control of our lives. Right? There are all sorts of pictures that we've kind of had, illustrations like two bulldogs in a fight. And the one that wins is the one we feed. That's not right. The flesh and the spirit aren't fighting with each other. They're fighting with us. That's where the struggle is. The flesh isn't trying to push back the Holy Spirit. The flesh is appealing to our heart. The flesh is appealing to our nature. The flesh is appealing to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And saying, go and do this. And the Holy Spirit is saying, no, don't do that. Do this. Follow me and go the way I'm leading you. The flesh is wrestling with us through the works of the flesh and to give in to the excesses and all the desires of the flesh. The Holy Spirit is wrestling with us to live a disciplined life, to resist temptation, do the good things God has for us. The winner is the one we surrender to. 
Right? So again, with this, here's what happens. It is a choice. The flesh and the spirit are both at work within us and they're pulling us in opposite directions. And if we go to the flesh and we give into that, here's legitimately what happens. We resist the spirit because he is pulling us away. We resist his leadership. We resist what he's trying to do. And we intentionally surrender to the flesh, which then leads us and controls us in that moment. But it's not something that has to happen. It's not because the flesh conquered the spirit. It's because we turned our back and resisted the spirit in order to follow the flesh. In the same way, if we resist that temptation and walk in the spirit, it's because we turn our back and we reject the flesh and we choose to follow the Holy Spirit where he is leading us. So what we must do on a moment by moment basis is continually surrender to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, Galatians 5, 16. But I say walk in the Spirit, and what? You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, again, the wording is so very important. It doesn't say walk in the Spirit and you probably won't carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit and you'll be less likely to carry out the desire of the flesh. No, he says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Right. So the Holy Spirit, if we follow him and we surrender to him, we will always do what he wants us to do. We will never give in to the desire of our flesh. But this is a a moment by moment continual thing. Look at verse 25. If we live in the spirit, let's also follow the spirit as well. Now, the picture in verse 25 of let us follow the spirit is to keep in step with the spirit. In many ways, it's a it's not quite a military term, but it does picture soldiers marching in unison. If you've ever seen a a drill team like the Army drill team or the Air Force drill team or the Navy drill team or the Marine Corps drill team, you've seen all of these soldiers out there and they're marching in step. And they're flipping their rifles exactly together. Everything works smoothly. They're moving as though they are one person. That's the picture. That as the Spirit leads, we step. If He says, go this way, we go that way. We don't hesitate. We don't say, I I don't know, I kind of want to go over here. That's not keeping in step. That's not following the Spirit. The Spirit says, resist that, go here. And we're like, yes, that's what I'm going to do. It is a continual. As soon as I feel the Spirit leading me away from that, I follow Him and do the things that He wants us to do. If we surrender to the Spirit, we move when He moves, steps when He steps, we will never give in to the passions and desires of the flesh. And then we must crucify the flesh. God's Word uses strong language. On how we're to deal with our flesh. Look at verse 24 of Galatians 5. Now those who belong to Christ. Crucified the flesh. With its passions and desires. Now the first thing we need to notice. Is that the wording there is past tense. Some translations even say. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. Have crucified the flesh. The idea is that those who belong to Jesus. Understand the dreadful evil. Of the passions and desires of the flesh. And so they have dealt with it appropriately. They have chosen. They will not do what the flesh wants to do. They have made the intentional decision to put it to death, to try to kill it so they can keep in step with the spirit and not do it. They aren't playing with it. They aren't saying, well, sometimes I want to do this. They are making the choice 
to put it down. Now, part of crucifying the flesh is denying ourselves. And I think this is the starting point for crucifying the flesh. And it's probably the most important point in crucifying the flesh. Because if we will not deny ourselves, we'll never be able to crucify the flesh. We must deny ourselves. The desire to resist the Holy Spirit and rebel against God will always be with us. There will never be a time where that internal fight is not there. And so if we say, well, I will fully crucify the flesh when the desires are gone, then that's just a guaranteed I will never crucify the flesh because those desires will always be there. Instead, what we must do is make the decision, I'm going to crucify the flesh And then as the desires continue to well up within us, we deny them and we crucify them and we put them to death. That's essentially what it means when we crucify them is when they well up, rather than giving in to them, we deny them. We deny ourselves that desire we have. Now, this is hard. Most of us are not particularly good at self-denial. We are just as humans, indulgent people. And as Americans, we live in an indulgent culture. This makes it doubly hard for us to deny ourselves anything. But it's no less necessary. And we also have to realize this won't be a once-for-all thing. I wish it was. Man, I wish I could give you ten steps to crucify the flesh once and for all, never to deal with it again. That bad boy's dead and ain't ever coming back. But that's not the world we live in. Self-denial is a constant struggle, something we must always do to deny ourselves and crucify the flesh that we can walk in the spirit. Now, one thing I want to point out, one last thing before we move on. This doesn't mean we only crucify the acts of the flesh, right? Because notice what it says in verse 24. Crucified the flesh, that's the acts, with its what? Passions and desires. Right, so it's not enough to just deny ourselves the action. We have to deny ourselves the desire and the pleasure we get from it. So let's say we have a desire to gossip. And so we deny that and we don't share the gossip. That's a good start. But if I go over in my mind the gossip and I continually think about it and I take a little bit of pleasure and maybe what it would feel like to share that with someone else. I'm not desiring the passion and the desire of the gossip. And the fact is, the longer I think about the gossip, the longer I think about how juicy it is and how much fun it would be to share, the more likely I am to actually give in to that and share the gossip. Right? We are going to have to deny the not only the action, but the desire of it. If we continue to meditate on it and think about it over and over again in our minds, we have not crucified the flesh With its passion and desires. If we have a desire to say something hateful and judgmental. And again we don't say it out loud. That's a good start. But if we sit and think about it. And we go over and over it in our minds. We haven't crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we have a desire to sin sexually and don't. That's a good start. But if we go over those sinful actions, go over them over and over again in our minds, we haven't crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And and you can take that with any of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. With any sin, there is the mental part where we think about it, and there's the physical part where we act on it. 
We can't act on it. That's crucifying the flesh. But we are called to a higher standard than to just crucify the flesh, not take part in the action, and then continue to think about it and take pleasure from it in our minds. We must crucify the action and we must crucify the passion and the desire. And so we can't continue to think about it. We have to, to put it on our, put it out of our minds. We may not be able to stop a desire from welling up within us. And we may not be able to stop a thought from coming into our heads. But we can stop ourselves from acting on it. And we can stop ourselves from dwelling on it. When we allow ourselves to sit and think on the desires we're tempted by, we are not crucifying the passions and desires of that temptation. Instead, we are giving it a place in our lives. And again, the more of a place we give it in our lives, the greater chance there is we're going to act on it at some point in the future. We must crucify the inward passion as well as the outward act. So the world is our enemy. The flesh is our enemy. And the devil is our enemy. The final enemy God's word warns us about is the devil. God's word has much to say about the devil and his hatred of us. He is a tempter, Matthew 4.1. He is a liar and the father of lies, John 8.44. He is a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10.10. He's always looking for an opportunity to destroy us, 1 Peter 5, 8. And he's a deceiver of the whole world, Revelation 12, 9. Now, that's just a small sampling of what God's word tells us about Satan. But what we know from this sampling and from what we know from God's word, Satan hates us and he wants to destroy us. But he's not a quitter, right? So maybe we're deeply devoted disciples of Jesus and he can't find a way into our lives. He's not a quitter. If he can't destroy us, then he'll try to destroy our marriage. And if he can't destroy our marriage, he'll try to destroy our children or our grandchildren. He wants to destroy our church, but if he can't destroy our church, then he'll try to destroy our love for the church. And if he can't destroy our love for the church, then he'll work to destroy the love our children and grandchildren may have for the church. Satan's overall goal is to bring destruction in one form or another into our lives and the lives of everyone we know. We know he is actively and consistently doing these things. We know from looking at the world around us, he is wildly successful in doing these things. So how do we fight him? There's one primary way God's word tells us to fight the devil. We submit and we resist. The primary way we fight Satan and his demons is through submitting and resisting. James 4, 7. Submit therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, that is the most biblical way you and I as disciples of Jesus are to fight against the wiles of the devil. Submit to God and resist the devil. Now, I'm not going to take a long time on this. But it's very popular in our day for people to talk about binding the devil and rebuking the devil. But when you look here now in spiritual warfare books. Praying, oh, Lord, bind the devil and we rebuke him in Jesus name. 
That's in all those spiritual warfare books. It is. But can you find it in here for me? Can you show me where we're commanded to bind the devil? Can you show me where we're commanded in prayer to address the devil? Satan, we rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Can you find that for me in here? And here's the thing. I don't think you can. Submit to God and resist the devil. That's what we're told to do. Now, that's not like sexy, right? That's not cool. To write a book and say, here's how you fight the devil. Submit to God, resist to the devil. Not going to sell any copies. But submitting to God, resisting the devil, that's what we do. That's how we win. There's a reason a lot of that spiritual warfare language and books and stuff doesn't actually deliver anyone. There's a reason a lot of this really extraneous and odd and esoteric stuff that we read about and maybe see on YouTube and we see what they do to, to help deliver people. There's a reason those people aren't actually helped because what they're doing is not real. It's not in the Bible. God's word tells us what to do. Now, submit to God in part means submit to God's word. I cannot submit to God while rejecting his word. This is the word of God. That's what overall we, we don't have time. We're right out of time. But we could look at many places. This is the very words of God. Right. So this is what 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 does God think about homosexuality? What this tells us is what God thinks. What does God think about the salvation of the lost? This is what God thinks. What does God think about morality? This is what God thinks. What does God think about what priorities should be in our day-to-day lives? This is what God thinks. What does God think about how we should treat people? This is what God thinks. So if I'm rejecting any part of this, I'm not submitted to God. Right? And therefore, I can't actually resist the devil. Because when I am rejecting a part of God's word and saying, well, that's not the way I'm going to live or that's not what I'm going to do. I am actively in rebellion against God and I am doing the will of the enemy. How can I resist him when I'm actively doing his will? Submit to God is a saying God's word is right. God's word is real. This is how we're supposed to live. This is what we're supposed to do. Submit to God and what the word of God says. Submitting to God is not also is also not just a the general God's word is right. God's word is real. And that's what I'm going to do. It is also submitting to God in the moment. Right. Because it's one thing to say. I believe God's word is true, but it's something else that when a temptation comes to say, I'm going to live according to God's word and I'm not going to give into that temptation. So in the moment of temptation, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life begins to arouse our flesh and pull us in a direction. In that moment, we submit to God by doing what he would want us to do, which is not give in to that temptation. We resist the devil and what he would have us to do, which is give in to that temptation, and we choose to do the will of God. We flee from that temptation as God's word tells us to do. One of the great things about God is God always empowers us 
to do anything he commands us to do. There is nothing in God's word that we're to do in the strength of our own abilities. Anything God wants us to do, he gives us the ability and the power and the grace and the mercy to make it happen. Even submit to him and resist the devil. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13 says, There is no temptation taken us, but such as is common to all humanity. But in that moment of temptation, God will ensure we are not tempted beyond what we are able to bear and will always make a way out. So God has told us, here's how you fight the devil. You submit to me and you resist him. And in that moment of temptation, God is going to make sure we're not put in such a place of the temptation. We have no choice. God doesn't have us live as victims, right? He's going to ensure the temptation, while it may be strong, it will not be such that we have no choice other than to sin. There will always be a way out. So if we're backed into a corner of temptation. If we look and if we're available, if we're watching, we're ready to submit to God and resist the devil. There will always be a door out of that moment so that we don't have to sin. And so what do we do in that moment? We submit to God. We take that way of escape. And in doing that, we are resisting the devil. And really, and I'll kind of end with this. Most of what God's word tells us to do deals with our relationship with him. Very little about our relationship with the devil. So even resisting the devil is not, I rebuke you, Satan. I resist you, Satan. It's I submit to God. If I am submitting to God in the moment of temptation, I am resisting the devil. If I'm submitting to God in just any area of my life, I am resisting the devil. If I'm submitting to God and how I ought to think, I'm resisting the devil. Right. So I don't have to say, devil, I'm resisting you. What do I have to do? Focus on God and submit to him. And as I submit to God, that's resisting the devil. And God's word promises Satan will then flee from us. But notice. It's a choice. Submit to God. It's a choice. So the. The onus, as it were, is upon us. The moment of temptation hits us. What are we going to do? Are we going to submit to God, thus resist the devil? Or are we going to resist God and submit to the devil? But really, we always do one or the other. The choice is ours to make. God, you think about what we've talked about tonight. We fight these spiritual battles from a position of victory, not defeat. I think often as disciples of Jesus, what we've often done is we have lived as poor, pitiful us. Poor, pitiful Christians. It's just so hard to be faithful to Jesus in this world. Struggling to be faithful to him. And I'm not making light of the fact the struggle is real. It is. But we have the world... And then we have what we're supposed to do to overcome the world. So we know what to do. We have the flesh and then we literally have the spirit of the living God living within us. Leading us and empowering us. We have the devil 
And we literally have God at work in our lives, making sure we always have a way out. The battle's real. I'm not saying it's not. What I'm saying is we're not fighting from a position of weakness. We're fighting from a position of strength. Children of the Most High God, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are filled and empowered with one part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God Himself. As born-again disciples of Christ, we legitimately have everything we need to win every spiritual battle we will ever face. We have it in the Word of God. We have it in the Spirit of God who lives within us. We have it in the Son of God who is our good shepherd with a rod and staff that fights off the wolf and the thief. And we have it in God Himself who will always make a way of escape. We fight battles. They're hard. But we fight from position of strength, not weakness. We fight from a position of victory. We're, we're not... Losers trying to win. We're winners who have to choose to lose. Because of all God has done in us and through us and for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've given and done. Thank you for what we have in Christ. That we are more than conquerors. The Christ who has loved us. We are filled with the Spirit. We never have to give in to our sinful nature. Help us to live lives where we are submitted to you and we resist the devil in just doing that. Father, help us, Lord, not to get carried away in the extremes, not to have an unhealthy focus on the devil and the demons, but not to act like they're not real and it's not a a thing that goes on in the world around us as well. Father, we want to fight and win for ourselves and we want to fight and win for others. Help us to grow in our knowledge and our understanding. Help us to grow in our sanctification. Let us be holy as you're holy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.